Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. We have a much more disciplined approach. We have certain economic parameters that we'll look at before we even think about getting on a plane. What does the market look like? What is the path to commercialization? How mature is the opportunity we're looking at? Where does it fall on the due diligence checklist? Once we understand that clearly, then we make the decision to get on a plane. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. And welcome back to another episode of Suncast. This is number 37. I'm your host, as you just heard, Nico Johnson. And today, you get to hang out with me and one of my buddies, Robert Blanker. Bob is a guy who's been in uh, Latin America, he's been in the solar industry, and more broadly the renewables, for a long time, and I've been after him to get on the show for what feels like even longer. I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Bob while I was down in Miami. As you guys know, I was recently down there. It coincided, in fact, with the LACCORE conference that was hosted jointly with Green Power. Uh, Those guys always put on great events. Uh, and graciously invited me in as a guest. So I thank you, LACCORE and Green Power Conferences. You put on a great event as well in Miami. Thank you for giving me the space and time to interview none other than Mr. Bob Blanker from WRB Energy. Now, if you're scratching your head like most, thinking, who the heck is WRB Energy? Well, I'd suggest you go do a little bit of research on WRB Enterprises, the parent company. But frankly, There's not a whole lot you're going to find about them, broadly speaking, and they're not one of these huge IPPs that you see everywhere in the energy industry or business developers that are out buying projects or even developing a ton of projects out in the public eye. However, they are involved in a lot of energy and power deals. Most notably, they did a 28-megawatt project that won the very first Jamaica power tender where solar was involved. That was recently built and commissioned. Just an amazing project. It was the first major scale solar project to be built and and put into operation in the Caribbean. And Bob has a depth of information that he can share about that. Uh, I wanted to meet with Bob most notably because he's been in development a long time and he just has a ton of great stories. This is an hour and 20 minutes. I apologize, it is a little bit long. I'm not gonna go into great detail here in the intro on bullet points of what you're gonna learn, but if you hang on for a ride, I guarantee you're gonna enjoy this conversation with Bob. As always, I'm grateful for you. Your encouragement and patronage of Suncast is why I do show up every week. And I have really gotten some amazing feedback, had some great conversations with you guys, and you are always suggesting amazing people to have on the show. I'm looking for ideas around what sort of series you think would be interesting, and a series on storage, a series on distributed generation in the United States. If you reach out to me, nico at mysuncast.com, find me on LinkedIn, on my website, you can leave me a voicemail. I'm always open and eager to hear your feedback, 
and implement it here on the show. Also, what did you think about that episode last week with Edgar Arfizu? Was that not an amazing wealth of content? I mean, Edgar is just top notch. Hey, before I run, this episode is brought to you by SoulRates.com. SoulRates helps solar installers provide instant online financing quotes for commercial and industrial customers with projects over $100,000 in value. If you'd like an invitation code to join the SoulRates platform, just reach out to me directly, nico at mysuncast.com. SoulRates is presently only offered for U.S.-based projects. Okay, thanks again for being here with me. I love hanging out with you. Enjoy this week's episode of SunCast with my good buddy, Bob Blinker. Today on Suncast, we have my friend, colleague, industry uh, icon in some ways, and and industry uh, shadow in others, Bob Blinker. Bob is the head of renewable energy for WRB Energy. He's the principal of their sister company, WRB Sarah Partners. And beyond that is a veteran in not only renewable energy, but project development in general with decades long track record sourcing, developing, managing infrastructure projects, particularly in Latin America and the Caribbean, where he has spent a considerable amount of time in Honduras and the islands. Uh, He's developed energy projects, vertically integrated utilities, and sustainable infrastructure throughout the Latin America region, but as well in some other countries like Uzbekistan. And he's talked a little bit about his background extensively spending time in development, not the way we often think of development in the solar world, but development that is critically important to the future of this world. And I could read on and on his prolific biography, but instead I'll simply welcome you to the show, Bob. Thanks for being on the show today. Great to be here, Nico. Well, one of the things that Obviously, we share this history that you and I know about, which is that we're both returned Peace Corps volunteers. But your history in the Peace Corps goes quite a bit deeper than that. And I often start the show with a question around how you got into Latin America or how you started speaking other languages. But I feel like your answer might be a bit different. So I'll start with what was the, what was the catalyst or what was the inception point for you that said, I think Peace Corps might be a good place for me to put my time and energy. That's an easy one, actually. I think about that a lot. But, you know, as you go through life, you, you, your life is shaped and, and touched by various sorts of mentors. And one of my mentors was Barry Wakeman, who was head of the uh, environmental education program at the Cincinnati Zoo. You know, unlike most um, kids, I spent no time playing baseball or basketball. I'm a bit developmentally challenged in that respect. I know nothing about organized sports unless it's perhaps World Cup soccer. But uh, so I would spend weekends and free time at the zoo. Um, it sounds funny, but you know, we did environmental interpretation, took animals around to schools. You know, there was one time I was driving an anteater around and got stopped for speeding. And anyhow, um, but Barry was a Peace Corps volunteer in U- Uganda. And since he was one of the most influential people in my life at the time, um, I, I would grill him about his experience in the Peace Corps, making a difference. And so my dream was to 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 live someplace, get to know people without being a tourist. And I think that's critical, you know, where you really understand how they view the world, how they face their own challenges. 
similarities, differences, et cetera, without just being the sort of person that hops off a plane, the call them the Marriott Brigade, but you know, runs to the Marriott. Okay. Yeah. And you went to the Peace Corps shortly after college, or did you yep. have a, a piece of a career before that? No, I, I uh, basically left my calculus final and went to the airport, wow. and I was off to Costa Rica. It was interesting, because I was supposed to go to um, Kenya to do aerial radio t telemetry on big game in Sabo East National Park, which I'm a pilot, I was in wildlife management, it was perfect, wow. but then as happens with Peace Corps, you end up doing things you don't expect to do, so I was assigned to uh, agroforestry in Costa Rica, uh, but ended up doing rural housing so you know how it goes of course i do know how it goes <laughs> that could be a whole other podcast yeah, in and yes of itself it, it probably should be i'm sure there are peace corps return peace corps volunteers doing that uh did you meet by any chance tony thomas while you were there was she does after not, you okay. yeah it does not ring a bell she okay and we we're colleagues from uh, graduate school but uh it's the only connection i have to costa rica peace corps uh which doesn't have a peace corps anymore as as the case goes with they so graduated many. yeah they graduated into developed uh, a more developed country well that's interesting uh, you were in costa rica and you ended up turning into a so you turned that into a first stage of your career if, as i understand mm -hmm. it correct you could you talk a little about a little about how the the work that you did or rather the impact that peace corps had on you influenced the decision you made around how you, how you started your career yeah, sure. I mean, the the serendipitous arrival in Central America turned me into a Latin American uh, Americanist instead of a, an Africanist, if you will. And I think seeing the impacts of uh, U.S. foreign policy in the 80s in Central America was really eye-opening, and it, it really sparked in me a desire to contribute to what I saw as a more holistic development of the region through... Um, through meaningful work on the ground, mostly looking at skills training, and then also importantly, bringing that understanding and learning back to the US and helping people understand that the way people see us and the way we see them mm -hmm. may be distorted by distance and time. Yeah. So I finished up my volunteer service in Costa Rica, um, came back on my master's degree at Ohio University that had a program that... Um, a, joint, uh, a joint program for the Peace Corps? Well, the, it. it gave certain preference to returning Peace Corps volunteers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it was a master's in international administration with development economics. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of interesting because my first class had 19 nationalities in it, so it was kind of cool. And through the years, I've gone out to uh, various countries. Like uh, when I was working on a power project in Nigeria, um, we were doing it for the Emir of Dutse up in Jigawa State, and yeah. he called a meeting. Five of the seven Emirs of the regions were Ohio University graduates, so we had wow. a little OU alumni meeting in the Unreal. middle of, of the, middle of Nigeria. The, the Sahel. Well, can I can I pause yeah. there for a second? Sure. Because I often hear you refer to when I did a power project in Nigeria, or insert random country that I didn't expect. <laughs> Is was that was uh, I mean I feel like you've got a million of these stories, but was that a part of your Peace Corps service? No, that you Tennessee okay, Valley this was after this was Tennessee. Yeah. Okay, perfect. We'll get to that. Good. Sure. I just wanted to make a make an aside there just as a probe because I feel like there are folks who've done interesting infrastructure projects in the Peace Corps, uh, but it's not a core function as a Peace Corps. No, I mean, team. we did some water stuff right. and some yeah. hillside agriculture and things like that, the usual um, yeah. things. And I think the theme through our conversation this morning will be sustainability because yeah. I, I, you know, I started out with a focus on wildlife management, natural mm -hmm. resource administration, kind of the natural world, 
through, through graduate school and development economics that really focused on how do you build sustainable economies? And by sustainable, I mean socially sustainable, economically sustainable, environmentally sustainable. And that's what I think propelled me into continued Peace Corps work because mm -hmm. strife, um, conflict, and, and poverty do not contribute to s sustainability. Yeah. And this is late 80s, early 90s. Correct. Yeah. And so, you know, in a sense, I followed the, the, the theory of goes the way it opens. And so, right. um, you know, I was deputy director in Honduras, director of training, programming training. I went on to uh, assist with the opening, reopening of Peace Corps in Nicaragua mm -hmm. after the, the hiatus yeah. during the Ortega years. Had uh, an interesting opportunity in Argentina and Uruguay, uh, managing parks, but also as deputy director and then director, and then on and on and on, you know. It, it kind of as the the former Soviet Union was changing and reshaping, I had the opportunity to go um, apply my skills there. Do I remember you were in? Is it Slovakia that you? Right, were? three three years in Slovakia, which Such I loved. Such a beautiful country. And I had the opportunity also then to manage the program in Hungary, so wow. between Bratislava and Budapest, and uh, did a little bit of work in Moscow, and then ended up between uh, Bishkek and Kyrgyzstan and Tashkent and Uzbekistan. Wow. Um, but the the theme was common, and that is. How do we share ideas? How do we work with folks to um, skills transfer, to learn, but then also to work towards common outcomes? All things that are extremely helpful in your current role and probably all of our roles. I, I would love to know, what, what do you feel like was the catalyst? You were 15 years at the Peace Corps, if I recall. What was the catalyst that prompted you to kind of leave that first job, that first love? How did you know it was time to move on? And where did you go from there? Well, first of all, I was assisted by a statutory requirement. You can only work five years of staff at Peace Corps. Oh, okay. And so between contracts and volunteer service and everything, I pretty much ran the clock out as far out as you possibly could. But, but I will say, by the time I left, it was time to go. Um, when my passion and enthusiasm could not match that of a recently arrived volunteer, I knew that, that they deserved people with a little more energy. I mean, there's nothing more passionate than a recently arrived Nobody more passionate or more knowledgeable or, or with stronger convictions than a recently arrived Peace Corps volunteer. Yeah, that's, that's um, certainly true. And so the other thing is that as I worked in grassroots development, I really began to see that well-run businesses did as much or more for development than any sort of development assistance program. And, and what I mean by that is the deployment of capital, the creation of jobs, um, and meaningful occupations for people, the way for them to convert resources into revenue in an appropriate way, I think is really the, 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 the end goal of any sort of development. And, um, and that's really what pushed me to the next step, which was um, co-founding the Tennessee Valley Infrastructure Group. Tennessee Valley Infrastructure Group is, is focused on infrastructure only in the Southeast? No, we started out, this is once again, this is a very nonlinear trajectory, but um, I was introduced to, uh, to a fellow who had been in some of the same areas around the same time, who was coming out of public service as well. We both sat down and decided that um, you know, billions of dollars were going unlent every year for, for basic infrastructure to meet basic needs. And we saw a great need around the world. Um, we saw great private capital reserves, and I'm talking villages that you would think didn't have two nickels to rub together, and mm. yet enormous capital wealth stuffed under people's mattresses, waiting for the right opportunity to be leveraged and mobilized. So we cooked up, uh, we, we developed an idea um, to, to 
create a development nucleus. You know, we called it the, the integrated infrastructure platform. So power, water, wastewater treatment, telecommunications in a box for towns of 1,000 to 100,000 people. Wow. And so a generation. Yeah, and, and the, the concept was that it would be locally and privately owned and operated, that we would provide, if you will, an honest broker, kind of a nucleus around which the local capital could concentrate, and then we would assist with the financing process and, mm -hmm. and um, implementation. And then we also had a, call it a utility management system in a box, basically, so that if we so had enough- like software and hardware that they could- yeah, it was, no, it was process. Oh, process. So, right. for example, all of the key performance indicator reports looked the same. The accounting mm -hmm. was the same, generally applied right. uh, accounting practices, um, uh, maintenance regimes, HR and personnel best practices. So we're, we're applying the same system in uh, Nigeria as we would in Honduras or mm -hmm. we would in Mauritania. And the whole concept was how do you bring the kind of the human uh, resource capital, the IT, the intellectual property plus the technology and make it sustainable locally. Um, I think one of the most notable successes was the Utila Power Company in Honduras where we, we built a vertically integrated utility from the ground up. And on Utila. On Utila, yeah. Uh -huh. um, or as the Utilians say, Utila. Utila. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, much of the capital invested there was local. You know, whether they were people from Utila or from Honduras. Um, so we mobilized local capital. We, we orchestrated financing with CABE and uh, IDB. And uh, it's still operating today. In fact, I just talked to the president of the, the company yesterday. That was in 2000. So, um, And so we also learned another hard lesson, which is the transaction costs on this sort of thing are very high, meaning terms of time, effort, money, blood, sweat, tears. You know, we usually would be dealing with multiple ministries, telecoms, water, health, energy, finance, and they all had their little fiefdoms. Um, and so for a small project of 800 kilowatts mm -hmm. or a megawatt or two megawatts, it was the same amount of time, money, and effort I put into 1,200 megawatts of wind development in Texas. Yeah. So, it, you know, it becomes a very difficult way to make a living. Um, however, the nucleus of our generation concept was renewable. How much renewable could we plug in? And remind you, this is late 90s, early 2000. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I look at where we were then to where we are today. The technology has evolved enormously so that the yeah. things we dream, uh, could only dream of in, in 98, 99 are now economically feasible. I mean, it's if we were to start over What's today. What's an example that you would have only dreamed of? Well, look at look at module pricing for solar. Kay. I mean, historic lows. Yeah. Look at um, either flywheel or battery storage. I mean, mm -hmm. we were talking to folks like Danvest and Power Corp. We yeah. were engaged in the Alaskan rural power sector, and the solutions we looked at on a per kilowatt installed basis then have dropped. 80%. Do you remember off the top of your head what they were back then on a per, well, per kilowatt? Well, I mean, figure turbine pricing installed on Utila, for example, mm -hmm. in 2000 for a V27, which was, you know, V47 was like the monster, V27 was. And what does V stand for in that oh, case? Oh, uh, the Vestas, V27, okay, Vestas, sorry. Got it. I'm That's a right. guy first. That's all right. <laughs> uh, and, so, and it's a 27 meter rotor okay. diameter, which is 
a micro turbine now. Yeah. What's that <laughs> in terms of kilowatt generation? Like uh, that was a, shoot, was that a 250? That was 250? a 250 kW okay. machine. Yeah. And a lot of it was constructability. Had to get these machines off a boat, off of a barge, onto a small yeah. island with no big equipment. Um, flywheels, you know, Danvest uh, out of Denmark was probably the, the only one with a really well-integrated flywheel system. Right. But, you know, all in, we're probably looking at six seven thousand dollars kilowatt installed wow you know where are we today on I mean, and we just we just put together a, a hybrid system design for uh, one of our islands in Grenada and we are I think all in with battery storage wind turbines and the controller we already have the legacy diesels but yeah I think we're all in right around seventeen eighteen hundred bucks a kilowatt installed that's amazing yeah, and we're going to be able to offset 75% of our fuel burn, which was our dream. You know, yeah. that was our dream, but it just wasn't economically feasible. Wow, that's amazing. So, that's um, I mean, what a, I, I had not, I've not heard those numbers for, uh, for microgrid style, like hi, uh, hybrid storage diesel uh, projects in the Caribbean. That's, that's incredible. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. The contrast from the early days of, generation not just renewables but uh the penetration of power in these markets right to now is uh, is stunning it's uh, an interesting uh thing I'm, i've been exploring i recently had guests from companies that are doing uh sort of micro utility mm -hmm. and pico solar if you will mm -hmm. uh and in a lot of ways they are uh you know they're facing the same sort of hurdles that standard generation was looking at uh, in the in the early 2000s um, how did you know what did lead generation look like for TVIG and how did you decide where to invest your time and money well we looked at the markets almost the way you would look at a, a wind map um, you know this was in the early days of, of GIS becoming um, ubiquitous and easily accessed and in fact Tennessee Valley Authority was a, a an equity shareholder in our in our efforts we work quite a bit with their their gis department but you know you look at areas that are underserved with electricity areas that have um, basic economic activity that can benefit from infrastructure you know the other the other challenge was you know across especially across latin america urban migration is a huge huge problem um, so how can we work with rural communities and give people what they need to stay in rural communities and be effective and productive? Were you focused on Latin America versus Africa? Did you choose a region specifically to begin with? We, we were focused primarily on Latin America because of me um, and, and access to resources. But we also did do some work in Africa. We, we worked with the Zambezi River Basin Authority, um, doing things like um, providing village power under or in sight of the high voltage DC lines that carried power from the Coatabasa Dam into Johannesburg, knowing that those lines would never be tapped. People would be living under high tension lines, never having access to electricity. So we were looking at, or likewise living alongside a gas pipeline, never having access to electricity. And so we were solving some of those challenges. Um, so we did, we did some work in South Africa, we did some work in, in Mozambique, uh, we looked at some things in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, and, and like I said, we built a, a small power plant in, in Nigeria. Uh, we did some work in Mauritania. That was um, kind of village communication and power work. Just asking a bit more 
uh, around specifics and thinking about if I'm listening to this, how this might apply to my life and my world. How did you go about finding those opportunities? Like, it's interesting that you were in all those countries. I'm fascinated by what must have been a wild experience. Working leads. Yeah. So yeah, people, people found you know. out more about you, mm -hmm. and then they started asking if you could help them. Right. And leveraging, you know, we kind of leveraged our contacts. So, for example, Africa mm. was primarily through either equipment suppliers we were working with out of so South Africa mm -hmm. who would turn us on to um, opportunities. Right. Um, our strategic partner, the Tennessee Valley Authority, as they were called on to provide technical assistance with entities such as the Zambezi River Basin Authority in, in Mozambique or the uh, Magdalena, Cor Magdalena in Colombia. Yeah. I think it cannot be underestimated, uh, just a, conne a connection just came in my brain, the number of international economic leaders who at that time certainly um, was true, who schooled in the United States. Right? Absolutely. Who, who went to UT and exactly. therefore knew the Tennessee Valley Authority guys. And so when they had a problem back home, yep. that's T who they called. TVA was a model. I mean, yeah. it's many people in the U.S. Um, have either forgotten or never learned about the importance of, of the public-private uh, partnerships that were yeah. Bonneville Power Authority, Tennessee wow. Valley Authority, mm -hmm. uh, Colorado River Authority. Um, and that the, you know, I still, it's funny to see the, the propaganda, propaganda, the uh, information coming out of the TVA promoting electricity to so inexpensive it won't be worth metering. Right. That's uh, you were telling me that 40 years ago or so yeah. they were saying electricity so, would be so cheap. <laughs> but I mean, the TVA was an economic, an engine of economic development mm. as opposed to a power company. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, for example, we, w we did some work in Brazil. Um, TVA has a whole software suite managed to optimize a hydro system. So they operate, I think TVA operates 57 dams. And so they export in the US, in the US and they export this software that allows them to op optimize those hydro releases across a, a, an entire watershed. And so they were working with Brazilian power authorities on the Itaipu system hmm. uh, on precisely this. Um, we leveraged, like I said, equipment suppliers. Yeah. Um, Diplomatic, you know, once again, I, uh, Rick Ector and I both have strong ties in the diplomatic community. Yeah. Um, and like you said, graduates of Ohio University who are now ministers of economics or ministers yeah. of energy or prime ministers yeah. or, and so on. So that's, you, you work your contacts. Yeah. And you try to, you know, what we have also learned is that we spent a lot of time and effort barking up the wrong tree. Uh -huh. or wrong trees, yeah. forests of trees. And it's very expensive to get on a plane. So, you know, subsequently we've developed quite a bit. When I say we, when I look at WRB Energy, we, we have a much more disciplined approach. We mm -hmm. have certain economic parameters that we'll look at before we even think about getting on a plane. Yeah. What does the market look like? What is the path to commercialization? How mature is the opportunity we're looking at? What, where does it fall on the due diligence checklist? Once we understand that clearly, then we make the decision to get on a plane. You have a due diligence checklist. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we don't look at anything without putting it Bravo. on against the checklist. <laughs> you know, I'm friends with Jason, who is a wonderful developer on your team, and I ask him uh, lots of questions. And one of the things that he, uh, that we talked about recently was the cost to enter a market, and how does that play mm -hmm. into 
the relevant the relevance of that market within your overall strategy mm -hmm. right so I think it's fascinating and I don't think enough developers really have this quantified how do you think about quantifying the minimum viable volume mm -hmm. how do you go about that as a company or as a developer how would you advise someone to consider they're raising a fund they've got uh, they've got a minimum budget they've got a lean team they're trying to grow their company uh, they're looking out like you said at maybe just where they have the most contacts or how do they need to think about modeling the minimum viable sort of size of market what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? That's a good question. I mean, there's a cost to being an early adopter or an early entrant, but there's also benefit. You know, by the time everybody else gets excited about Country X, Country X is done. Yeah. Um, Panama and Chile. You know, yeah, I think Chile about Chile. Great, I think about our, even Argentina. We, yeah. we, you know, we've been watching Argentina, but they're at the end of the day, the way things panned yeah. out, there was no opportunity That's for right. us there. So, um, I think. One, you need to look at countries you actually want to be in mm -hmm. because uh, you will get stuck someplace far longer than you think you will. So make sure you want to be stuck the there. The old adage, twice as much time and twice as much budget. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, we look at, you know, we're not a big organization. And so we're very judicious in our use of resources. And so we're looking at markets where we can have multiple hits, leveraging the same partners. Um, and do you have local partners? It, we always work with local partners. What's always. the value in a local partner? You know what you're doing. Uh, we know what we're doing, but we can't do everything everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so our benefit, I think our greatest value add is flying high cover, working with the local, going back to the due diligence checklist. Yeah. Um, no, I don't care if you're uh, cousins to the president. Right. What I care about is where are these 12 documents? Are they signed? Are they right. duly registered and so yep. on? That's all I care about. Mm -hmm. I, I'm simplifying a bit. Sure. But, and so I think that's the single biggest value add we bring is that discipline of process. Mm -hmm. and, and what our local partners bring is you know, their cultural informants, their local knowledge. They mm -hmm. will steer us away from things that, that are unacceptable to us. Um, Perhaps even tell you what should be unacceptable that you aren't aware of. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And we pay a lot of it. We're a family office, so we mm. pay a lot of attention to that. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, we're in. We're playing a long game here, so a, a short hit is just not worth any compromises. In comparison with some of your peers, how would you say uh, how important is the depth of relationship with your local partner to you? Well, it's like any partnership. Um, uh, whether it's local or, or U.S. Mm -hmm. or uh, you have to be able to trust each other. Mm -hmm. You have to be comfortable that, A, the commercial aspects of the deal are clear. So everybody has um, harmonized expectations or aligned expectations. That's really important. And that's why, as painful as it is, we spend a lot of time developing term sheets that mm -hmm. may or may not develop into final documents. But through the process of developing those term sheets, we're forced to confront uncomfortable issues. Set expectations. Set expectations and make sure that it's they're explicitly detailed on a piece of paper. Yeah. As my friend John Fedorko always says, if it's not in the four corners of a document, it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so you can tell he's an attorney. Um, and then, you know, frankly, our experience in the region also facilitates um, these relationships in that 
the way you might think a literal interpreter of contracts in the U.S. is not the way we would treat somebody who brings enormous value in Honduras, for example, but doesn't look at mm -hmm. contracts quite the same way. Right. So we have patience. We, we look at our role as educational as much as anything, and we bring our partners through the development process. Sometimes they learn a lot and abandon us. Sometimes they learn a lot and they stick with us it's because the they, sword, right? yeah. But you know, it's like raising a kid, I guess. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you're not gonna. They're not gonna be around forever. God, I don't. I don't want to make that sound condescending. No, that's a great analogy. It's like raising a kid. I hadn't thought about that way because you can do all like you can do all your best and have a great trust relationship with your kid, and there's there's still a chance they're just gonna turn against you and. Go do their own thing. Yeah. Well, they will always go do their own thing. Well, but for sure. And that's why I want to be careful with that analogy. I don't want to make yeah. it sound condescending. But think of the asymmetry and understanding of the development mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. As the asymmetry is lessened, mm -hmm. it's very easy for the less experienced partner to become independent. Yeah. And But that's just a natural risk. And you know what? It's, it's a big world. And How do you protect against or hedge against or how do you think about the eventuality of your local partner becoming self-sufficient and now you've spent time, money, resources, other than that, creating a viable, bankable, I'll call it company, locally. Mm -hmm. And then one of your competitors swoops in and is willing to pay more because they haven't done all the work and they, but they still have the budget that they haven't depleted. How do you, how do you, because I see this happening all the time right now yeah. in Latin America. We spend time on exclusivity so that at least we're going to get one project out of it. Yeah. Um, we can't control future mm -hmm. aspects of it, but at least for the short term, we, we're going to insist upon exclusivity. Yeah. Um, and we hope that there will be a serial nature to our relationship, but if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Yeah. I, I also think we're in a period where the market is evolving so quickly mm -hmm. that the you know, the static concept of greenfield development, getting it to shovel ready is just a small fraction of what we're trying to do now. I mean, uh -huh. they're just, it, it, things are evolving so quickly. I'm really, I mean, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but I'm not quite sure where things will end up five or 10 years from now. It's a, it's a crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go into that, and on the heels of this conversation around thinking about opening new markets, um, I'd like to play a game I call hot or not. They're all hot. They're in the tropics. They are all <laughs> extremely hot. They're in the cancer, the, the tropic of cancer or Cam Capricorn. I don't I know. Tropic of Zika and dengue. It is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll name a specific market, and you just give me thirty to sixty seconds on uh, whether or not you think it's hot. Not lukewarm can be an answer, uh, and why. And we'll start with we'll go. I think we'll go vertically oriented. So let's start in Mexico. Okay. Um, clearly hot, and I guess you need to qualify hot for whom, mm -hmm. yep. because right now it's it's hot for the big boys. Mm -hmm. You know, the small boys, the small folks have been kind of pushed out of the market. Yeah, just because of these, I think. And by big boys, you mean like the utility NL, scale NLs, yeah, yeah, the five hundred megawatts, yeah. mm -hmm. a gigawatt, Imidrolas, yeah. We'll s time will tell whether this stuff actually gets built. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are certain market mechanics that have been put in place that favor large well-funded companies yeah and it's a land rush and i w i would apply that to argentina peru mexico yeah. peru um, oh. Uh, oh yeah peru i mean it was craziness 
yeah. uh, during the last round of, of tenders. Right. Um, I think you have people making questionable economic decisions in exchange for market share. Right. So we'll see how the dust settles. Um, what Mexico has is a very large, uh, regionally speaking, a large economy, um, a resilient economy, and a close relationship, hopefully it continues to be close with the United States. And so yeah. it's a great market to be in. You can do serial projects there. I think there is a, uh, a very strong and deep uh, national uh, human capital pool, mm -hmm. um, which also means there's a lot more competition, both from domestic as well as international. S Spain, I mean, Spain is the big player right now. Right. Hot. Hot. <laughs> so we'll probably spend some time north of Panama. Um, I know that you've got a lot of experience in both the Caribbean and Central America. So I'm going to start with the Caribbean and go okay. to Central America. But broadly speaking, I like to just put the Caribbean in a bucket. I'll leave it to you to talk about w how you'd parse that. But what do you think of the Caribbean? Hot or not? Complicated. It's a, eh. <laughs> From the guy who built 28 megawatts solar yeah. on, on It's complicated. On and when I say that, it's it's every island is different. Yep. Every island is an island. Um so you're not going to take what you did in Jamaica and apply it in St. Lucia. Every utility is different. Mm -hmm. um, I think the needs are similar, but I think the biggest challenge in the Caribbean is size. And I'm talking about non-U.S. territories, mm -hmm. yeah. so outside of Puerto Rico, yeah. or where you're, you're, you're competing on a heads-up basis with all other types of generation. Yeah. Um, size is your, is your enemy. There's just not enough volume, not enough, scale, yeah. not enough scale to make it worth the time, generally the time and money you would need to invest to make a project happen. So what makes it interesting then? I'll take an aside here. In the Caribbean, how does, how does a country or even a project get interesting? Well, I think a couple of thoughts. You know, obviously WRB's in the region, been in the region for 40 Long plus time. years. And so... And, and for, I'm uh, sorry, yeah. for the purpose of the, the listeners, WRB is an asset company that has owned utilities in the Caribbean for 40 years, right? Right. They uh, sold St. Lucia, if I'm not Dominica mistaken. And Dominica and Grand Turk and yeah. Salkeen. So we're talking about a company that has uh, a family interest for a long period of time in the Caribbean, probably knows the Caribbean as well or better than anyone, right? Absolutely. So with that as, a, as understanding. And, and that's the Blanchard family. I have to say I'm kind of relative. I've been there for, whew, I don't know, eight years now. So I've yeah. known the Blanchards for decades, but yeah. have been directly working with WRB for about the last eight years. Yeah. Um, and it's, a, it's really a suite of three entities. You've got Enterprises, which was historically mm -hmm. the owner and operator of utilities. The Caterpillar distributorship came out of that, and the, the banking interests mm -hmm. are Bank of Tampa and Center State, large community banking in Florida. Energy is our development shop. We, we either partner with developers to take projects to over the finish line or we'll do greenfield development depending upon the jurisdiction. Yeah. And then WRB Sarah, of course, is our, our private equity fund designed yeah. to provide sponsor equity for the projects that we identify uh, in the region. Gotcha. And so I'll say the relationship with the Caribbean is personal. Mm -hmm. um, it's challenging, but you know, over the decades, uh, you know, the members of Carelec are, f are friends and family of ours. Right. And so how do we help, and I mean this most sincerely, our brothers and sisters in the region solve some of the most vexing problems that they face. Yep. Electrical infrastructure is critical for economic development, yeah. I'm convinced. 
Absolutely. Um, as much as I like standing in a place that's totally dark with no artificial lighting, you know, I look at that map of the world at night with lights everywhere, and it pains me a little bit as a, you know, as a biologist. But ener electrical energy is, is, and telecommunications are key to social and economic development. So how do we help them solve these vaccine problems? How do we be a meaningful player? And you ask, why bother? You know, I look at if I could, if we could take Jamaica to 30% renewables or 60% renewables, be part of that, or if we could take Grenada to 100% renewables through intermittent generation plus geothermal, we transform a nation. Yeah. A nation. <laughs> I mean, we, we, t we transform the, the development trajectory of a nation. Yeah. And, uh, and, some, and some would say, well, yeah, but it's Grenada. But it's that starfish philosophy, right? It's, like, it's important for that entire country. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you're Grenadian, it's pretty darn important. <laughs> so, and then wha how, do you ex how, do you, how do you then replicate that? Um, yeah. So anyhow, that's, that's kind of what keeps us interested. Well, what fascinates me about WRB is you guys understand generation at its most functional core level, having, uh, done, uh, having owned and built assets of practically every generation type and, mm -hmm. uh, and understanding. I mean, I, I remember the first person I ever talked with about um, uh, avoided cost was you. Like, I didn't understand this this concept that utilities think about of avoided cost mm -hmm. and uh, nor did I have any idea of the of the scope of the Caribbean differential compared with like their Central American mm -hmm. counterparts mm -hmm. um, so we're still in hot or not I, and I, I don't want to belabor too long I am uh, I do I think I, I, I as well as the listeners are fascinated with the idea we don't talk a whole lot about the Caribbean so maybe we'll circle back around to it sure um, is there anything in the Caribbean uh, today that you think is hot well, I think if you're in the EPC business, you're going to see a number of tenders coming mm -hmm. up for, yep. in the global scheme of things, relatively small projects. But right. let's say three to 30 megawatts. Right. Um, I know Aruba's working on a tender mm -hmm. for both solar and wind. Finally. Uh, St. Lucia is moving in that direction for, uh, I think it's a 12 megawatt wind farm. We'll see how that pans out. Right. Um, Bahama, no, Bermuda. Well, Bahamas completed a tender process last mm. year. As did Bermuda. And Bermuda completed one a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. um, they're small, uh, complicated. You know, I would caution people, you're going to underestimate a lot of your costs. Right. Um, yeah. But I, I think those are moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, IPPs, I think the opportunities are very few and far between. Yeah, super opportunistic. Yeah. And then... There's a lot of inertia on the regulatory side. I'm thinking of all the things that create challenges, but mm -hmm. for a lot of these ancillary services that people are talking about, different ways of looking at how you run the utility, you still have the utilities mm -hmm. and they're vital to the survival of these, these nations. That's right. Um, and so I think we're still in the early days of figuring out how nibbling away at the economic base of the utility affects the viability of the electrical sector. and. You can imagine that there are widely varying opinions on that, whether yeah. you're in the, the public sector side, whether you're in the consumer side, whether yeah. you're in the utility seat. It's, it's a complex and polemical discussion. I think we're going to see uh, in the near term, the next five years, this uh, discussion bear fruit both in Jamaica and the Dominican Republic, where they're now getting 
high penetration both of wind and solar right. assets. Yeah, the DR, I forgot about the DR. Oh, I didn't forget about it, but it's a slightly different animal because mm -hmm. of some of the challenges they face on the non-technical loss side, yeah. um, which burdens, uh, in particular, commercial and industrial can users. You, can you just define non-technical loss for the theft, uninitiated? Electricity theft. I think it's a national sport, second yeah. only to football, <laughs> soccer, In the or, or, yeah, or baseball. <laughs> yeah. That's actually, so I, f I feel like there's a lot of folks that are looking at the DR. Uh, how, how would the, the notion of non-technical losses impact a solar development, if at all. Like if you're going down and you're looking at, some developer brought you four projects that they want you to try to fund in the Dominican Republic. Wh what are the, like the two things that you're making sure you're checking the box on? Well, I mean, non-technical losses affect me on a very fundamental level because power contracts in the DR are, or historically have not been particularly bankable. Yeah. The off-taker, if you're losing 46% of your product, mm -hmm being stolen um it's really hard to to get excited about your off taker as as viable right what it does on the other side though is it creates an opportunity because the people who do pay pay for all of that theft right and therefore they're they're highly incentivized to self-generate not that's right. that's that, right. that electricity but i think more importantly people are forgetting the fuel price spikes of just a few years ago of course that that Fuel price volatility created havoc in terms of uh, your operating expense for any sort of industry that required electricity, yeah. even in the hotel and tourism uh, sector. So by, by putting in your own fixed price generation, you're, you're reducing uh, the volatility on that tranche of generation. Yeah, and nowhere uh, in our hemisphere is that more powerful, pun intended maybe, than the Caribbean. Right. Um, and and more, um, you know, just directly tied. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. People have forgotten the, uh, you know, well, if we look back to oil going down to, geez, $40 a barrel mm -hmm. in 2015, six months prior to that, you know, Panamanians, and I'll just use Panama as an example, Panamanians by and large were paying 18 to 24 cents a kilowatt hour mm -hmm. and were more than happy to sign P, uh, PV contracts. and. Um, and the, the people were, you know, there were hundreds of 10, uh, 10 megawatt size projects in Panama. So let's talk a little bit about Central America uh -huh. as a counterpoint, uh, and not necessarily as a region if it's hot or not, but do you see uh, any countries where you would say absolutely that's not, or yes, definitely should consider? Well, I'll tell you what I like and what I don't really like. I mean, mm -hmm. first of all, I mean, I look at El Salvador as a very um, methodical mm -hmm. market. I think that you know, rule of law, respect for contract is pretty well proven. You don't have currency risk, and they have a plan. Yeah. You know, is their execution on the plan perfect? I don't know, but, <laughs> but you know, who is? It, it's a place we're very interested in. Yeah. Um, Guatemala, I don't like merchant risk. Yeah. But their market works, and it's historically worked. Mm -hmm. um, Costa Rica, very mature, a very competitive. Um, probably much lower returns expectations but still state run state run correct with the pros and cons yeah um, but once again a very well proven market mm -hmm. i like nicaragua i like i can't believe i like honduras for some reasons <laughs> i think it's challenging for others i think they're still working the bugs out of their um shoot what do you call it um the 
the way they're 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 creating the payment pool with the banks uh, mm -hmm. for the power contracts. Yeah, the that's, that's still yeah. I was gonna say fideicomiso, but, but it's I don't know what you call I don't it in think English. They call it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what you call it in English. It's funny. <sighs> clearing house. It's yeah. A, yeah, it's like a a, a payment clearing right. um, vehicle. Belize. We've looked at a number of things in Belize. Uh, the problem is size. size. Yeah, Belize, Belize is seems more like it's a Caribbean island. It's to me. more Caribbean. Yeah. Well, and it's because of the way it's it's developed and yeah. the vast swaths of of um, pristine uh, wild areas that they have. Yeah. And then the Keys, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, so that that brings us to Panama. I think we all know what's going on in Panama. Uh, I think it's it's done for now. Yeah. Uh, on the utility scale, for sure. Yeah. But it seems like DG has a promise. DG? Self-gen? <laughs> Absolutely. The challenge with DG is who who's buying it. Um, mm -hmm. I will say that the traditional maquila are incredibly price sensitive. Oh, yeah. They're price sensitive and in terms not a, of— And there's not a huge— uh, uh, industrial market in Panama either. No, and, and I'm really talking about maquilas across the region, yeah. but— um, they're sensitive to labor relations and labor costs, mm -hmm. and they're sensitive to energy inputs. Yeah. And if either of those change significantly, mm -hmm. they're out of there. That's right. They have to be, because we as consumers demand that. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so you're not going to see long-term contracts. Yeah. And in the absence of long-term contracts, and this is what I try to explain to our regulators and, and public sector um, observers, Without a long-term contract, you're not seeing the 3.9-cent energy you're seeing on these big contracts in Mexico. That's right. You need those long-term contracts, otherwise you're leaving money on the table. And you need to de-risk it. Yeah. So how do you protect against currency? How do you, uh, you know, alternative dispute resolution is yeah. absolutely critical. You never want to end up in local courts. So is there a mechanism that you're seeing, that you've seen work in other regions or in other industries that would help uh, tie... Well, they would help these regulators provide some form of a long-term contract, even if the retail customer wants a three-year contract. Or ha is there is there anything? I'm, I don't know. I'm off. off I'm just thinking off the top know, of my head. Yeah, I don't here. know that that's the role of the regulator. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, for example, what I see Foder doing in Argentina, yep. I think is is interesting. Right. And that's a model that I think could bring real change into the Dominican Republic and other places yeah. where you've had these rocky. Can you explain um, what you mean by what Fodera is doing? Yeah, they're doing essentially. Uh, it's a, it, it's a payment guarantee, if yeah. you will, on on long-term power contracts. Mm -hmm. And so, in the event that your off-taker, in this case a state-owned or state-backed off-taker, doesn't pay, you have a a pool of capital available to make good on your contract, right. which of course de-risks your entire project. Right. Um, and that's where the multilaterals, I think, I think I have, is it IFC or IDB? I can't remember who was behind Foder, but they've, they've taken a very important step to reforming a, a power market in a, in a market that was challenged from a bankability perspective. Yeah. Um, I see that more applicable to traditional utility scale contracts. Right. Um, on the DG side, it's really regulatory reform in terms of, Finance and banking legislation, allowing people to make loans even though they're not registered lenders. Right. Um, you know, it's a, it's a lease purchase contract or whatever you want to call it. I'm not a big fan of um, 
simulated PPAs just because of enforceability and all of the, your transaction costs just start going way up. But it's an option. It's what some people are using in, in some jurisdictions. For sure. Um, yeah, and the other, you know, I think the EBC developers uh, stand to gain if you have a reform in the finance and tax sectors as well, because if I'm a reasonably well-capitalized company, why don't I just buy my own generation? I don't mm -hmm. need to lease it from somebody necessarily. Precisely the argument in Panama. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you've got companies like Solaris. I assume they're still around. I haven't talked to them in a while, but they're based in Tegucigalpa and mm -hmm. San Pedro Sula, but they provide O&M services across the region. And so you're, you're seeing this growing... It's not quite the Astro Energy plus Grameen Bank concept you saw in mm -hmm. Bangladesh, but it's you've got competent service providers growing in the region who can provide, especially for the you know like the hundred kW to one megawatt sort of O and M function. And with software where it is today, the guys sitting in Tegucigalpa or, or San Jose are equally capable of providing you with the string level monitoring that you might get out of California. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Guys in California probably don't want to hear that, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean I mean we have friends in Honduras who have uh gone so far as to buy their own uh their own software and uh monitoring equipment companies, right? And they've bought and they they're integrating them at uh into their electrical service infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And uh and are well-equipped, in many cases, better equipped than American companies I've seen. Yeah, and I think you're going to see a lot of that coming out of Colombia, too. Oh, yeah, no I doubt. I mean, you're au fait no with Columbia, what's going on. But Columbia is a skunk works of, uh, of software development, and it's amazing. Yeah. It's so why don't we, so dynamic right now. So why don't we go, Colombia's on my list, why don't we just go to Colombia, hot or not? Hot, well, I think it's hot, especially when you're in Medellin, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, let's uh, not touch Medellin. Uh, but I, I love Colombia. I love the dynamism. I love where it is, um, kind of economically and socially. I like the human capital resource that's there. Uh -huh. I like the very well educated. Yeah, I mean, and you've got people like well, groups like EPM and Presas Publicas de Medellin that are now out competing on a global scale. I hate competing against parastatals because yeah. of my free market opinion. Yep. But you know, I'm out there competing against EDF, so why not EPM? Right. Right. Um, APM is now like a ten billion dollar company, right? Yeah, th it's they're crazy. smart, they're aggressive, they're you know they're thinking out of the box, they're and they finding solutions, and they own Central America. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> getting there. Um, what I don't like about Colombia are the relatively low long run marginal pricing resulting from inexpensive coal resources, mm -hmm. inexpensive gas resources, and legacy hydro. Yeah, and inexpensive or and, and lack of markets for them to continue exporting to. <laughs> exactly. So I'm really not sure short term that the new legislation new, it's not so new anymore, but a year ago, um, I think facilitates renewables, but it leaves a lot to to desire yeah. uh, on the on the regulation side. So it's kind of a Watching it very closely, and I think some interesting things will be coming out of Colombia. I believe I believe you're right. We touched on Argentina, so we won't spend a lot of time on it. Hot or not? It's smoking hot right now. Yeah, but, but for utility. Do you see a DG market growing? I think the regulation came out two days ago. Uh -huh. That will make that a little clearer. I do actually see a DG, a large DG market in Argentina. Wow. Um, and I say that only because... You have large internationally recognized firms that have weathered seven or eight of these economic cycles, and they're still there. Yeah. They have significant energy needs. They are subject to the national system, and they're looking for ways to inject 
predictability into their production process. So, um, I, yeah. So hot. Uh, yeah, I mean it's yeah it's hot. <laughs> I you know that what I what makes me uncomfortable about the hot or not there yeah. are some knots. Yeah. Um, but because I have to still go there, I might not tell you which countries those are. But uh, the hot is all relative. I mean, if you're willing to invest time and yeah. money and be on the ground figuring stuff out, yeah, they're hot. Yeah. But you're not just gonna drop in and make something happen. Yeah, they're not hot in the sense that you're gonna start you're gonna go there this year and expect to start generating uh, a massive port pipeline and, port and, pro and profitability. Yeah, it might be, you know, I would probably divide it in, in between interesting, we're actually actively engaged there, mm -hmm. we're monitoring actively, or mm, not right now. Yeah, and you don't want to talk about the not right nows? Well, <laughs> I, I mean, some of the not right nows are for obvious reasons, Brazil, yeah. for us, a company like us and our uh -huh. size, yeah. not with, not your barge bowl would i touch <laughs> would i touch brazil you know yeah. i've done some work there but uh it's a huge market and there's definitely a home court advantage to to local Absolutely. companies so unless you're big and willing to play big brazil's not the place to be yeah. um bolivia for obvious reasons obvious. venezuela for obvious reasons mm -hmm. um uh you know just going up ecuador for the right people there are opportunities there but it's it's kind of in the Boli Bolivia bucket right mm -hmm. now, in my mind. Colombia, I love. Um, Guyana and Suriname. Well, French Guyana would be just like the French islands. They're the systems of EDF. Yeah, Ex yeah except they, they've recently made a huge commitment to renewables. Correct. But I think uh, you know, in French Guyana, mm -hmm. unless French you're a French Guyana. company, French Guyana. You're, you're going to be disadvantaged. Right. Um, well, um, and a, a big Italian company won. Uh, the first. Uh, fair enough. Maybe I should re restate that. Unless you're European and close oh, to good. Paris. Yeah, okay, it's fair. Um, yeah. So in Suriname, Suriname and Guyana have the same kind of size and geography constraints right. that some of the Caribbean. Yeah. But eh, they're starting to do some things. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying they're without challenges, but they're. And I've they're realizing that they're on the lower lower end of the totem pole for other types of uh, generation resources. So. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, it's a lot easier for them to just go ahead and self-generate. Right, right, right. And fix and this, fix this problem. Yeah, and and uh, they're, uh, you know, once again, I think maybe less so Suriname, but certainly Guyana has problems with non-technical losses, mm -hmm. and you know they're trying to get that under control. So, um, so I mean that's the region. It's uh, am I forgetting anybody? No, you seem well. We haven't talked about Peru or Chile, but I think we can leave them in the not right nows. Yeah, I mean Peru, we we took a swing at the last tender, but yeah, I think now. Because of the the changes in the commodities markets globally, they're probably oversupplied at this point. And mm. Chile, it, it, you know, it's merchant. You get back to very mature merchant market, which makes us, at, at least from our perspective, a little bit nervous. There are people who are playing there very effectively. Oh yeah, it's yeah. Just not us. It's a cost of money issue for yeah. Chile and and infrastructure. I have a I have a general question that I want to look at, sort of from a frontier markets perspective or from a uh, around the corner type perspective uh, as we uh, as we sort of move into the home stretch here. Uh, you know, a lot's changed in the last 20 years. I'm curious to understand from your perspective, um, what are you, in terms of business model, I think that the biggest change we're gonna see right now in renewables is the ability to couple storage 
Uh, obviously, you guys, it seems, are doing really well from an engineering perspective at wrapping your heads around that. Where do you see our world evolving in the next five years? Uh, and like, what's around that corner? What are you most excited about as you think from a development perspective that, again, if you could have looked into the crystal ball from ni- from 1995 to now, you were as surprised about that as what you think is going to happen to the to s- sort of our market in the next five or ten years. What do you see? This isn't the the my in my my last question on, sure. on crystal ball. This is just. Well, I'm hoping we see the the price compression in stores that we saw in modules because mm-hmm. that's really changed everything. Yep. Um, I think the Wild West or the, the New Frontiers, I- in some respects, is in regulation, hmm. um, which is not sexy and doesn't put a lot of money in people's bank accounts. But you know, I look at the experience of Hawaii and how they've been trying to figure stuff out that's mm-hmm. complicated. And they've had a lot of help, DOE and FERC. I don't know if that's help, but yeah. <laughs> DOE, FERC. Had a lot of oversight. A lot of oversight and, and, and consulting and resources put into it. And they're still figuring it out. But you know, from a customer's perspective, it comes down to the lowest levelized cost of energy. I mean, what, what am I paying for the power that I get out of my meter? Yeah. And how does that affect my business? And so as we look at all of these permutations in terms of evolution of generation and distribution and, and so on, load shifting, how, how can smaller utilities or utilities that aren't necessarily state-of-the-art provide the level of service and i'm using this really more in the caribbean context i guess i know there are service delivery challenges elsewhere but the level of service people have come to expect top quality high high quality service while incorporating things that aren't widely proven and Mm -hmm. that's been our challenge um and like i said yesterday you weren't in the session but I got into this business. I'm not a power guy or wasn't a power guy now, but I wasn't a power guy. I was in a how do we solve people's problems guy. Mm. And the integration of multiple systems into a reliable single system was challenging. Mm-hmm. I think it's finally getting figured out. So this is a very long way of saying what I'm excited about are the, the options that are now available. Yeah. So are we serving customers at the utility level, mm-hmm. are we serving them at a regional level? Are we serving them at the customer level? Yeah. And now, I think there's plenty of room for innovation on the not only the technology side, you know, everything from, you know, the Tesla Powerwall with some solar panels to how do we come up with finance products that make all of this happen mm-hmm. within the regulatory context of each, of each of these jurisdictions. And I think a lot of smart people are thinking about this right now. And I think the next five years are really going to um, transform what we think of as the utility space. Oh, uh, yeah, I completely agree. I think that my, my personal answer on this is the disintermediation of the utility business model uh, is going to take place. I think in developing countries long before it actually takes place in the United States or I think it could. You know, I look at the proving experience. They launched a very I thought it was a very innovative and interesting program. I don't I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was basically the two kilowatt Mm -hmm. system operated on a utility basis, more Mm -hmm. or less. So that they put out a hundred thousand units Mm -hmm. or was it a hundred megawatts, something like that. So a lot of them. 
uh, two kilowatts to charge a light bulb in a cell phone. Yep. And this gives power to people who live in unelectrified areas, and it gives it, it gives them power for what they need it for: right. the light bulb, so the kids can study, and the cell phone, so they can talk to each other. Absolutely. And wow, I mean, if if you take that maybe one step further to a refrigerator, a lot of people are okay with that, at that's least right. for now. That's right. And that's transformational. It is. And what we see right now outside of Peru is private industry is driving that forward as opposed mm -hmm. to what in Peru was remarkably a government-led initiative. Well, well they, put out the, they put out the tender, yeah. but it's a private company managing the whole thing. For sure. With the government kind of standing in as the, the guarantor of payment. That's right. People still have to pay. Mm -hmm. But in the event that they don't, the, the government essentially stands in as the guarantor. Sure, but we're talking about essentially a government privatizing a piece of their of the utilities business and giving it to a private entity to control versus a Segura International, for example, who uh, has developed their own specific technology, has gone in, has uh, in Haiti, ha has worked with specific communities to give them generations long before going and asking for concession from the government, which they were awarded a concession for 250,000 person community, um, which is kind of the opposite. That's like a, that's a pull method in from the government. Whereas, you know, and perhaps, perhaps I'm wrong in Peru, perhaps it actually happened that private industry lobbied for and got this RFP. Well, I think what happened was you had unserved areas mm -hmm. and you can do, you can serve those areas in one of well, there are multiple ways you could serve mm -hmm. them, but you either have an electrical, uh, a rural electrification program where some subsidized means are used to run wires from your interconnected system, or do what Peru did and just yeah. give up on running the wires, at least for now, and yeah. find a way to provide some electricity. I would argue Peru, uh, Haiti is kind of doing the same thing in that what they're doing is they're courting private sector to come set up really islanded utilities. Right much like SEPEM in the Dominican Republic. Yep. Um, so it's government exercising their function of providing, creating an environment in which basic services are provided to their people yeah. or electorate. Now, how you choose to do that via pi private or public means is, is up for debate. I, obviously, I like the private sector approach. And, you know, frankly, I don't know if uh, Lucy Fuerza in Peru could have done this rural electrification program on their own but it's an interesting way to start but I think the traditional IOU model is under siege yeah yeah both here and abroad mm -hmm. and here being in the US and as well as in the developing world and to your point I think because it in some cases especially where they're parastatals they haven't delivered necessarily high quality service universally I think they're probably more in peril and we'll see faster evolution because they can leapfrog um, technology. Yeah. You know, yeah, what's available today in terms of multiple services off of your street lights versus what was available even a year ago. Totally. You know, we can provide cell service, Wi-Fi, and street lights. And oh, by the way, and we have real-time um, smart metering, and you want to pay from your cell phone? That's fine. We can do it all. Yeah, I mean, they're gonna they're embedding everything. Like now, you can get light bulbs that have speakers in them. So imagine that. That's like scary. Yeah, well, <laughs> you'll, you'll have you'll have uh, streets lit by LEDs that are also casting a Wi-Fi net 
and have embedded speakers to be spoken to from above. <laughs> and uh, listened yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and listened to, scary <laughs> thought. So if you could start over, gosh, I have a million more questions for you, Bob. <laughs> if you could start over again, I'm thinking maybe this is like the, the, the iconic question, what, would, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? But if you could start over today knowing what you know, what would you do differently, if anything? Oh, I would have gone to veterinary school and become a veterinarian. <laughs> I was in pre-vet, but, wow. but no, I mean, I yeah. would actually like to do that in addition. I want to live multiple lives right. at once because yeah, I think I go. would have enjoyed that as well. Um, you know, it's, it's what I tell, tell um, our boys, and that is find a good mentor mm -hmm. in the industry you think you want to be in. Make sure you think about why you want to be there and not forget about the money. Yeah, I'm talking to my 25 year old self. Not yep. that obviously I worked for Peace Corps for how many years? I wasn't worried about money, but it's what are you learning? How does how does the industry you're getting into jibe with your personal values? And who can you partner yourself, hit yourself to who's going to teach you the most? Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of look at it. I'm getting philosophical here, but it's like putting your canoe in a river. Once you're in that river, you're not getting out of that river unless you portage so you may steer left bank right bank but you're going down that stream so make sure you're putting your canoe in the right river yeah it's critical and so for me did I ever think I would end up in the utility space no it was the probably the last thing I thought I would ever do but what I love is the the sustainable aspect of what we're doing how we're transforming an industry and really how we're if, you know, frankly, by working in the renewal space, helping people to live in a way that I hope is more sustainable, both economically, socially, and environmentally. So hopefully we're, we're, we're pointing, pointing the ship in the right direction. Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate that perspective because I feel so many of our colleagues get into the renewables industry not because of the money. I mean, there is there, if you can get lucky and make good money, mm -hmm. make great money in this industry, but most uh, most of my colleagues and friends aren't making um, you know wild amounts sums of money that they could be making in software or other places, and um, and I appreciate that about our industry is that it's a it's an industry driven as much by altruism as uh, as it is by by personal uh, pursuit, uh, and most of the personal pursuit I see is a pursuit of leaving the world differently than. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps their parents did or uh yeah um yeah thanks. that that mentoring and learning i think is critical and you know i've always been in kind of entrepreneurial mm -hmm. uh areas but i'll, I'll tell you I, I think i mentioned i spent several years seconded i seconded myself to airtricity during their build-up prior to their sale to eon right and i learned a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, had I to do it over, I would love to have spent more with that group of people. Okay. I mean, they were true pioneers, visionaries. Um, everybody was in it for the go-go, the, the right reasons, you know, in early, out late, not because they had to, but because they wanted to be creating a, 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 a new wave of energy development. And that was, you know, having that, that um, exposure to perhaps a slightly more corporate environment mm -hmm but that was still dynamic and development oriented, I think was enormously transformational. It Were gave me a little bit of discipline that I might not have had otherwise. Do you feel like that exposure with Airtricity was something that you attracted and that was intentional about your career development or was it luck? 
the exposure to airtricity, the fact that it happened. Yeah, I, no, I think it was, um, it came to me through a, another fellow Peace Corps volunteer from Honduras. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think it was a function of being open to it okay. and, and kind of refining my, my expectations and goals. Yeah, working in a very small company in Chattanooga, we weren't at the epicenter of development. Yeah. And what Airtricity allowed me to do was move to the epicenter of renewables development in Austin and, and um, really participate in building something that became actually phenomenally successful. Phenomenally successful. Amazing. Yeah. Is there anything uh, specific? You mentioned getting a mentor, and I could probably spend 20 minutes on just mentoring alone. I think that's a key aspect of being of personal development. Um, how would you how would you advise a new young uh, eager uh, entrant to WRB or your own children on finding a mentor and the value uh, of leaning into that mentor like how 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 that works? Yeah, it's critical. It's got to be somebody you respect, somebody you admire, and and I guess we have to recognize that life's life comes in phases as well. So it might yeah. not be a mentor for life, right. but what do they teach you about the industry? Mm -hmm. And what do they teach you about yourself? Um. How do they help you refine your thinking? Yeah, I think that's critical. And I, you know, I think back to the people who have really helped me shape my thinking and it was serendipitous, mm. I think in some ways, running into them. You know, I think of, Roger Peterson, my fifth grade science teacher, it's because he really, um, in, uh, he awoke the, the, the ability to question why things were the way they were in the world. Mm -hmm. Barry Wakeman at the Cincinnati Zoo, right. um, you know, I think to Don Boucher. And it's interesting because some of them have been people I probably would not normally have thought of as, right. as logical mentors. But Don Boucher, even though we were fairly different in a lot of different ways, he taught me the value of building a team, trusting in your people, and getting the best out of people. You don't have mm. to put your name on everything. That was a really important lesson. It's easy when you're a certain age to be hubristic and, and egotistical. And he helped me get over that. So, yeah. you know, there are different, I think different stages of your life will call different people forward. And so you just need to be open. I, I think the biggest step is identifying the need for a mentor and being mindful about choosing one. Right. After that, it'll solve itself. Yeah, and I would add a third, giving more in uh, offering more to your mentor than you're asking for in return. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just acknowledging that they have a lot to give, but also like as a 25-year-old, the thing that you have the most to give is time and energy. And right. so think about how, I admonish you, dear listener, to think about how uh, you approach your mentorships because a lot of times mentees can be draining and yeah. uh, and they and, and they don't have to be they can be something where you give so you pr you just add so much value to your mentor's life from helping them with any little thing I could give lots of long examples that they're will they're more than glad to accept a coffee uh, date any you know when you ask um, yeah and and I think following on your point you got to step up and deliver that's right meaning I, I had forgotten that the world is full of mediocrity <laughs> while I was working with Peace Corps because Peace Corps volunteers you know maybe this is a personal bias but they most tend to be exceptionally good yeah and some tend to be exceptionally bad but yeah. there's nobody in between there's no that's mediocrity true. in Peace Corps yeah you know people are it's a self-selecting group I felt that same at Airtricity for example people were 
dynamic motor TVIG. We had no mediocre people. Wow. We didn't have time for them. Yeah. And so w if you bring me a problem, bring me a solution. Tell mm -hmm. me how you would solve this problem. I may disagree with you. I love that. But I want you to have done the mental homework yeah. and the mental exercise to think it through and come with a possible solution. I love that. I tell my sons that all the time. They ask me to help them. And my first response is, what's your answer? What's mm -hmm. your solution? When you, when you can explain to me your solution, I'm more than willing to help you. Yeah, uh, so it's not fair to your mentor to expect your mentor to spoon feed you. That's right, yeah, and to give you answers, exactly, to dispel wisdom into your life. So one of the ways that I obtain wisdom in my life is by reading. I love to read, and I know that you're an avid reader, so I'd love to know what's on your nightstand. <laughs> I have about 14 books on my nightstand. That's um, <laughs> I, I'm horrible. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm a hoarder of books. Um, and they're both on my Kindle and on my, you know, in the heart. I still like a hard copy book that yeah. I can give to somebody. Yep. And, you know, I think books and money are like blood. They're best when circulated. You know, when wow. they cease to circulate, you get blood clots and die. So. Oh, my gosh. That's a quote I'm going to use. You need to <laughs> circulate them. But, I mean, right now, you had asked me that question before, and I, I, I was just kind of laughing because I'm looking at what I am reading or have just finished. But. I go from airplane grade reading, which is, you know, something when I'm totally burned out and need to just read something. So I one second after by uh, William Forge, and it's uh, it's kind of a dystopian summary of what would happen after following an EMP blast over the U.S. and oh, wow. how quickly society would. It's, ele it's electricity based because the obviously it. the yeah. EMP wipes everything out, but how you know, how dependent people have become on this hyper-complex society that we've developed and how quickly it dissolves when you have something as simple as the loss of electricity for a year. That sounds I mean, phenomenal. You know, it's called One Second After? One Second After. A third of the population dies off. I mean, it's total and utter wow. chaos, and and it's plausible. Yeah. But it's airplane-grade reading. That's so, great. And then I'm reading um, The Great Leveler, uh -huh. which is violence and the history of uh, inequality. And it's really, that's, um, let's see, that's Walter uh, Scheidel. And that's really just looking at how um, inequitable distribution of economic resources gets reset, basically, through mm -hmm. whether it's war or some sort of uh, major cultural upset. Mm. Uh, pretty heavy sledding, but um, it's interesting. And then finally, I'm rereading um, Consilience by E.O. Wilson. He's a famous... Um, uh, ecologist. He, he, he's, he's looked at youth social behavior in uh, termites, bees, and humans, because they're the, the, the only groups of animals that uh, demonstrate this one. And um, it's fascinating. Consilience talks about the coming together of the scientific ethos with the, the humanities, and it's only by bringing those two together as opposed to separating them that there's a hope for a sustainable outcome because wow. the humanities is where humans are are unique and separate science comes up with the empirical so how do you put them together to create the art and the marriage of art and science that creates a path forward so that is deep i love yo wilson he's one of my favorites you mentioned uh that books are good for circulating what's the book that you've given away the most and why oh gosh or what's a book that you like to give away uh, it's funny. I just read them and give them. I say, "Oh, so and so would like that." Oh yeah. You know, I can't think of That's any. I mean, philosophy. Piketty's Capital. I've I've handed away to a couple of people. Piketty's Capital. Capital. Yeah, it was mm. after the big, you know, the big meltdown. Yeah. It, it's it's a it's pretty thick. There's also the a 
you know, like a Cliff Notes version yeah. that I attach to it, but I've given that to a couple of people lately. Interesting. I'll check that out. Piccadilly's um, Capital. Yeah, it's it's tough sledding too, but so uh, penultimate question: What one thing do you do consistently that yields the greatest results in your personal or professional life? I wish it were exercise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's two things. One, I. I've always kept notebooks or journals, so I write stuff down a lot. Um, ideas, thoughts, things I want to work on, and goals. And it's something I've got the kids doing now, too. Write down your five-year plan, even if it's just five sentences. Throw it in a drawer, and then look at it a, a year or two from now. Right. And it's not the writing of, it's the thought of uh -huh. that creates sort of a background mental yeah. discipline That's that right. keeps you moving forward. Tony, Tony Robbins famously says we often overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in five i can see that it, yeah and once again it's it's that whole idea of practicing mindfulness are you really doing what you want to be doing or are you mm -hmm. just kind of channel surfing in your yeah. life um and then i think the second thing is, is i i make a a real effort to reach out to people mm -hmm. that i've known over the years and mm -hmm. and um just make sure and I'm not talking about a, a thumbs up on Facebook. I'm talking about right. picking up the phone and calling somebody. Handwritten letters? Or handwriting them a letter and saying, hey, you know, for example, uh, my nephew won a big fishing tournament last weekend. I have a friend in Spain who loves to fish. And it's not, it, it's just to keep in touch. I said, hey, here's a picture of my nephew and his giant fish. I, you know, I was thinking about you. And how is your transition to this new job? And it's not for any mercenary sort of goal. It's you know, you share this voyage through life with people and it's really nice to you know, stay in touch. And, you know, people come into and go out of your life, but there are going to be certain contact, constants throughout your life. And I think it's particularly, it's harder for men to do that than, than women. Hmm. Yeah. Those are, those are really two great pieces of advice. Well, where can people find you if anyone <laughs> wanted to reach out to you? Is there an easy way? Do you yeah, yeah, the Admirals Club in Miami International. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, just email me if you want to. Yeah. I'm happy to, to share ideas with folks. Email What's your email? Uh, rblenker at wrbenterprises.com. Yeah, R-B-L-E-N-K-E-R right. at wrbenterprises.com. Yep. Got it. And uh, is there anything that you're working on now or next that we can help you with? Is there something that... Uh, you've got around the corner that you're excited about and you'd like to tell us about or that you'd like us to lean in with you? Well, the you know, with our fund, we're deploying capital now, which for me is pretty darn exciting because it's always, you know... This was Sarah, WRB Sarah. Correct. Mm -hmm. And I've usually been on the development side where I'm hunting for sponsor equity. Right. Now I have sponsor equity. I'm hunting for projects. Yeah. And for me, that's kind of an interesting and new and fun challenge. So, yeah. you know, anybody in the markets that we've talked about today that might mm -hmm. have some opportunities they'd like to look at, we're looking, willing to look at them very early stage, mid-stage, mm -hmm. late stage. Okay. Let me know. I'm happy to see what we can do. Very good. We'll have to have you, have to have you back to talk about uh, more about Sarah when you can talk more about Sarah. Sure. And uh, in the interim, let's end today with uh, the same question I always end with, a bold prediction. Bob? What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? That no one else is tracking. We're it's a bold prediction. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I really see what, what, I, well, what I hope to see, and whether it's five years or ten years, um, I'm hoping to see this transformation in the way electricity is delivered mm -hmm. to, to people. Um, I'm looking for significant... We've already seen them, but I'm looking for three things. One is a significant uh, improvement in efficiency on yeah. how electricity 
is delivered way more work out of the same amount of electricity. I'm seeing it delivered with far fewer losses, so generated and delivered closer to, the, to where it's being used. And I'm seeing it being delivered and um, generated in the, the most environmentally friendly way. And I think we're going to see major changes in the next five years in that area. Phenomenal. Well, if any of that happens, we will certainly talk about it here on Suncast. Bob, I just love spending time with you. I wish that we could have gotten into some of your, uh, your harrowing tales about uh, Honduras <laughs> or Nigeria, but we'll save that for the next time. Sounds great, Nico. Appreciate it. Brother, thank you for your time. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.